Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is kindly sponsored by Stripe and Stare. Did you know that only 3% of the underwear market is sustainably sourced? This isn't such a great stat for a product that we wear every day, which is why I'm a long-term fan of Stripe and Stare. They are a UK-based, women-owned brand who make the best sustainably sourced and ethically made undercrackers I have ever worn. And I'm super excited to tell you about their brand new game-changing Bee Edit collection. Using the latest science in fibre technology, the entire range is 100% biodegradable, even the lace biodegrades. Now I know what you're thinking, but don't worry, it won't biodegrade while you're wearing it. It needs soil and earthy nutrients to break down, so it will remain fully intact while you wear it and when you wash it. And it is also super long lasting. Now, if you're already used to the comfort and quality of standard Stripe and Stare, you will not be disappointed. It's just as comfy and is made in a fully accredited and audited factory in Portugal before it travels by ground, not by air, to the UK. Revolutions start from the bottom up, so if you would like to try Stripe and Stare, I have an exclusive 20% off discount code for my listeners. Just head to stripeandstare.com and use THINGS20 at checkout. That's stripeandstare.com and code THINGS20. Thanks very much to Stripe and Stare. Welcome back to All the Small Things with me, Venetia. I hope you're doing well and thank you so much for being here. If you're new to this podcast, I really hope you enjoy this episode. And if you do, there are a plethora of other interviews for you to dive into. And I'm really, really proud of these conversations and I hope you enjoy them. If you are a long-term listener, I would absolutely love if you could leave me a five-star review on iTunes. This takes no time at all and really helps get the word of the podcast out there. This is a very exciting episode. I am chatting to Vanessa Nakate, who is a climate activist from Uganda. She was the first Fridays for Future climate activist in her country and founder of the Rise Up Climate Movement, which helps to amplify the voices of activists from Africa. Her brand new book, A Bigger Picture, is part of her fight to bring frontline voices to the front page. When it comes to speaking or writing about climate breakdown, voices and stories of people of colour and from the global south are often omitted, even though these communities often contribute the least to the problem and suffer its consequences the most. Vanessa shows that without addressing this important gap, without highlighting the real and immediate danger communities like hers and so many others face, we have no hope of making progress in the race to save our planet. In A Bigger Picture, she traces the links between the climate crisis and anti-racism, feminism, education, economics, and even extremist radicalization, as well as telling the inspiring personal story of how she found her voice. And she shows readers that no matter your age, location, or skin color, you can be an effective activist. 
I think you'll be able to hear it in the episode, but I really did adore chatting to Vanessa. We had a lot of fun and I am just so in awe of her work and also very appreciative of the burden that she's carrying at the moment in the run up to COP26 and in this time that we're all living in. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Here is Vanessa Nakate on All the Small Things. Vanessa, I am so, so, so excited to have you on the show today. I absolutely adored your book. It is so wonderful and I'm really looking forward to chatting with you about it. But let us start as we always do. I would love to hear if you have any kind of rituals or practices that you like to do when you wake up in the morning to kind of ease you into the day. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here with you and to speak with you. Some of the things that I love to do when I wake up uh, to help me just really focus and be calm throughout the whole day and feel safe or protected. I love to pray a lot. I also love reading the Bible in the morning and meditating on the Word of God. It just helps me go through the day and the weeks and the months and the years. Yeah. I love hearing about that. I think it must be so important with the work that you do to kind of find that time of reflection and quiet and also to kind of zoom out and think of actually the bigger picture. (laughs) I would love to hear a little bit about your childhood just to give our listeners a good grounding of who you are. So tell us about growing up in Kampala in Uganda. What are some of your strongest memories of growing up here? One of the memories that my parents have told me that I really find interesting and just funny was when they looked for me and I wasn't at home and they were really worried because they thought I was missing. And then they found me in a nearby nursery school and I was seated in one of the classrooms studying with the other students, the other kids, I should say, because I was literally like one year old or one and a half. It became like a daily habit. I just wanted to go there every day until the school later on accepted to enroll me as one of the students. The other memories that I remember is the time I ran for assistant health prefect in primary school. But then I was extremely shy and I couldn't speak to students in class or stand in front of them at the assembly. So I ended up not getting the vote. The highlight was in my high school. I remember there was like a talent show program and it was called Miss Teen. It's almost like a beauty pageant, but the things that make you go through, it's the talent that you show. I said that I would go for Miss Dean. There was kind of some negativity from the popular students. <laughs> yeah, the cool ones at school, you know, saying that, no, I won't make it and I should make sure I don't embarrass the school. But then I just felt it in my heart that I could do it. I had no idea what talent I would do. And I remember I was at the stage thinking, should I say singing? Should I say dancing? And then I remember I used to love watching fashion shows a lot. 
the models would walk like in that straight line and showcasing the clothes. And I decided I would give that as a talent. And I was praying that it would be accepted as a talent. <laughs> I remember being a second runner up and just surprising everyone. And at that point, I felt really happy because I didn't let what other students were saying affect me. And I just went for something that I believed that I could do. I think listeners will agree you are exceptionally cool and <laughs> it's also great to hear about the levels of determination that you had at such a young age because clearly that has transcended into your uh, later life which we are incredibly grateful for. Let us talk about your incredible new book which is why we're chatting today, uh, A Bigger Picture. I can't actually fathom how much information is in there there's a lot of dense information that I think would usually be very difficult for people to potentially understand but you've written it in such an accessible concise way so congratulations because that's a huge achievement but it's also just such a beautiful picture of Uganda where you grew up and this call to action that we all really really need to engage with to prevent further climate breakdown so thank you for your work. You should feel so proud. I hope you're feeling proud of yourself. Now in it, you write about how you're surprised that you have ended up being a climate activist. So please, can you tell listeners a little bit about your journey to climate activism? Coming to my activism, in 2018, I started to do research about the challenges that the people in my community were facing. And I remember finding out about the climate issues. It's not the first time I had seen floods, landslides and droughts in my country, but I started to understand how serious the problem was. And at that point, I decided that I would do something for the people in my community. And I was thinking of volunteering to keeping that environment clean, cleaning a specific place or plastic collection. And in that time, I got to find out about the Fridays for Future climate strikes that were started by Greta. And I thought that that was really a powerful, inspiring and courageous way to demand for climate justice. So I decided that I would do the same in my country as well to demand for climate justice and to also create awareness of the climate issues that were affecting my country at that time. So in the first week of January 2019, I held the very first climate strike. Wow, that's amazing to hear. And tell us a little bit about how in Uganda, being a climate activist is quite different to being a climate activist in somewhere like the UK. What's the kind of reaction to being a climate activist in Uganda? And, and what are the kind of, I guess, risks involved? I think it's not just even being a climate activist. I think it's being an activist in general. We've seen quite a number of challenges that activists have faced in, you know, speaking up or protesting. The other week, uh, there were activists who were arrested for their work and campaigns on uh, the East Africa crude oil pipeline. Some of the activists in Rise Up movement were arrested early this year while they were striking in front of the parliament. 
And, you know, some people may not understand how difficult it is for activists in certain areas being unable to access and get permits to organize the strikes, being unable to have the resources. It's extremely expensive and many activists may not be able to afford that to put all those resources together and organize uh, the big strikes. And also, you find that, you know, there are certain communities whereby it goes even beyond the risk. It's about education as well. I've been asked sometimes why we don't walk out of school and people just don't really understand that activism will come, you know, in different ways and it will still remain activism. Many students understand the hard work that their parents put in to ensure that they go to school, to ensure that they stay in school and to ensure that they finish school. Not every child has that opportunity to go to school. When students have this opportunity, they will hold on to it and ensure that they don't lose it either through being suspended or through being expelled. It's really hard for students to walk out um, of schools to do a climate strike. Many students are in boarding schools like I was, and we are not allowed to have phones at school. So you literally just don't know what is happening in the world. They cannot be able to access the necessary information that would inspire them or that would make them start you know, doing activism. Even the time of the pandemic, uh, we saw you know, that being one of the challenges how we used to do our climate strikes, uh, many times you would go to schools and, you know, speak to the principals of the schools and then organize the strikes within the schools and speak and educate uh, the students. But when the pandemic started, schools were closed. And like I've said, uh, many students are not allowed to have phones. So we had that challenge of access you know to phones or access to the internet so there's really a challenge in coordinating and ensuring that those students voices are were still being listened to during the pandemic those are like some of the things that really make our strikes or our activism different from what we see in Europe or in the UK Thank you for providing that perspective. I think it's so important for us to think about, you know, we take something like the internet or access to a mobile phone so for granted. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
let us talk about what happened at the start of 2020 when you were in Davos in Switzerland for the World Economic Forum. You were standing alongside four other climate activists, all of whom were white. Please, can you tell us what happened during this time that led you to go viral and ultimately write this book? That was in January. I got an invitation from the Arctic Base Camp to go to Davos. And this is the same time the World Economic Forum was taking place. So I got to meet a number of activists from different parts of the world at this press conference. I was extremely happy because I felt like this would be a way to amplify some of the things that I've been talking about. One of the things that I remember, you know, emphasizing and talking about was the importance of listening to every activist and activists from different parts of the world and how it was important to you know tell their stories and amplify their stories so later on i see this article and picture it's a picture of four activists and i first thought that maybe in the sharing of the article you know on social media that was twitter uh, it might have uh, cropped it. So I went to read the article and I was so surprised to see that it was actually the full picture that was shared. And I could just see a bit of my jacket in the picture. I decided to read through the article and I saw an introduction of the activists who were at the press conference and my name wasn't there. I saw some of the messages that were picked out from what activists were saying, but none of you know what I had said was there. So in that moment, I realized that I had been, you know, cropped out. And I remember at that point, I just wanted to ask why. And I decided to do a court retweet on that tweet, asking why I had been cropped out, because I, I was sure that I was in the picture. So when I asked that question, I... I was so surprised to see a lot of support coming in from different people. It was really much needed because it was a frustrating and heartbreaking moment for me to experience that. It must have felt so devastating. And I'm I'm so sorry that you had to go through that, honestly, to have been invited and then ignored. It must have felt awful. How wonderful that you had that much support. And it really did seem like your message at that point was a catalyst that inspired necessary change to make sure that this doesn't happen again. But I'm interested to hear how far you think the environmental movement has come since you tweeted, you didn't just erase a photo, you erased a continent. Do you feel encouraged by the movement in terms of intersectionality, amplifying the work of black people, indigenous people and people of colour? Or do you think that there's a long way to go? I think that we started to have these conversations. People are really talking about the intersections of, you know, climate change and the other issues like race or like gender equality. But I still think we have quite a long way to go to ensure activists on the front lines of the climate crisis are amplified and they're platformed and their voices are listened to. I received very many requests to do interviews and events. And since I'm not able to do all that, I I ask to give those interviews 
to another activist to tell their story. And many times I'm asked questions like, is that activist eloquent? Have they spoken before? They insist on wanting you to be a speaker or to be the one to be interviewed. Recently, I got some invitation to do an event and I said I wouldn't be able to go, but another activist can be able to go and, you know, be able to tell their story. And the organization told me they would get back to me that day after having a discussion. And I think it's now coming to a month. They're still having that discussion. And I think they just won't invite that activist, you know, to speak or talk about the work that they're doing. You know, those are some of the loopholes I have seen in, you know, inclusion or diversity, especially with organizations and the media. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing those uh, examples. I agree with you. I think we've got a long, long way to go. But I do think that the more people who read your book, the closer we will get to being more intersectional. So we are seeing the undeniable impacts of climate change around the world, and they've been felt in Uganda for years. Rising temperatures, extreme flooding, food insecurity, deforestation are just some of the things that you speak about in your book and that you've mentioned in this podcast. The British colonized Uganda from 1894 to 1962, extracting and profiting from the country's resources. Now, the UK is hosting COP26 in Glasgow in November, alongside Italy. What will you be asking Boris Johnson and other world leaders at the summit? I think that right now, one of the most important things is climate finance, especially for loss and damage that is already taking place in different communities. And I think leaders really need to understand that loss and damage is here with us now. People are already, you know, losing things that they won't be able to recover. We cannot adapt to lost traditions. We cannot adapt to lost cultures. We cannot adapt to lost histories. We cannot adapt to extinction. We cannot adapt to starvation. Climate finance needs to be provided. And we need this finance in form of grants and not loans. More than 70% of this climate finance is in form of loan. The communities in the front lines of the climate crisis have to pay uh, back this money to countries that are already extremely rich, that continue to fuel the climate crisis. This will make countries like mine uh, move into poorer conditions for communities and, you know, for people's livelihoods. I was reading an article, you know, that was talking about uh, the climate finance being delayed till 2023. And you know, leaders uh, need to understand that delaying the climate finance is not being fair I feel like they don't understand the urgency of the problem, the urgency of the crisis and how people's lives are being impacted right now. And I also think that uh, they need to understand that while we want to limit global temperatures to 1.5 degrees, it doesn't mean that 1.5 degrees is safe, you know, for us. 1.2 degrees is hell. It's already hell for very many communities in the global south. Just know that me and 
my listeners are in solidarity with you and I am feeling so grateful for you and the fact that you will be there demanding this of leaders. Shifting gears slightly, I absolutely loved the chapter in your book titled Speaking Out for Women and Girls and learning how your two sisters, Joan and Claire, are activists as well on gender-based violence. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about why the climate crisis is a feminist issue and how, thanks to the work of Project Drawdown, centering women and girls could really help be a factor in saving our planet? The climate crisis disproportionately affects women and girls. In the existence of a crisis, the rights of very many women and girls are abused or the inequalities that very many women and girls are already facing are only exacerbated. And the climate crisis is not an exception. In many communities, women and girls have a responsibility of, you know, providing food, providing water for their families, collecting firewood for their families, especially uh, in the rural areas. So in most cases, women are at the front lines when the disasters occur. They are the ones who have to work more when their farms are washed away because of the floods. They're the ones who have to walk long distances, you know, when they cannot access water because of either contamination or drying up of water sources. They have to walk long distances exposed to, you know, getting sick, exposed to gender-based violence. Uh, many girls uh, face a risk of not going back to school as the climate disasters escalate. I remember reading an article, you know, that was talking about climate child brides, and it explained how or many communities, when they face the pressures of climate disasters and they're not able to take care of some of the costs that keep their children, for example, in school, it means that many of their children are going to drop out of school especially the girls, because societies usually have a priority of boys staying in school. And then many girls are forced into early marriages when their families have lost everything to climate disasters. And this is because, you know, as parents give up their children uh, for marriage, they expect bride price to help them recover from some of these disasters that they experience. So these are partly some of the ways that women and girls are disproportionately affected by the climate crisis. There is way more ways they are impacted. And I think that this is something that doesn't just need a few minutes, you know, to talk about I really appreciate the work of Project Drawdown, which lists a hundred things that we can do to reduce on greenhouse gas emissions. And ranked number five is education of girls and uh, family planning. Educating girls and women empowerment is a powerful tool for tackling the climate crisis. This is a solution that will reduce already existing inequalities that many women and girls face. This is a solution that will help build resilience, you know, of women and girls as they tackle the climate issues. And this doesn't just benefit 
the individuals, it benefits their families, it benefits their communities, it benefits the world at large. I mean, when more girls are in school and more women are empowered, it gives all of us a lifeline. And this is a solution that is going to reduce greenhouse gases all at the same time. And I think that uh, this is one of the things that, you know, people should start talking about because it would be a really powerful tool to tackling the climate crisis. I know it's an absolutely huge topic, like you've mentioned, and it does deserve such a huge conversation and a million podcasts in its own right. But I am very, very grateful for such a fantastic answer and something that is just so clear about everything that you say and everything that you write about and everything that truly we know we're just not paying attention to is how deeply connected we all are to each other and how deeply connected we all are to the planet. And, you know, if more people could realize that, the better the chance that we have, I think, and the more hopeful that we can feel. Vanessa, you work so hard in this fight in collaboration with others. I would really like to know how you relax and how you take time for yourself. To me, usually if I'm to say that I'm going to rest and relax, I would just need a bed (laughs) and a room with a door so no one gets in and possibly a blanket. I love to watch TV and I'm quite a fan of uh, Mexican telenovelas. I love to dance as well, but not uh, that professional dancing. I just love to dance uh, maybe with friends at um, at a party. That is one of the places where I'm completely free and I don't feel shy <laughs> because everyone is dancing. So I, I just, it's easy for me to really open up. So I think uh, those are some of the things that I really do to relax. Yeah. Sleeping and dancing are definitely up there for me. I can't say I've gotten to Mexican telenovelas yet, but the other two I am very much on board with. Um, How would you feel about doing a quick fire round? (laughs) Okay, we can try that. I haven't done it before. Okay, let's try it. Quick fire with Vanessa. Wake up early or have a lion? Wake up early. (laughs) Tea or coffee? Tea. Pancakes or waffles? Waffles. In the trees or by the sea? In the trees. Fresh flowers or houseplants? Houseplants. Twitter or Instagram? Twitter. TikTok or Snapchat? TikTok. Fiction or non-fiction? Fiction. Dancing or reading? Dancing. Podcasts or Netflix? Podcasts? Oh, no, Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) sunrise or sunset sunset and finally routine or spontaneity no routine routine great (laughs) (laughs) and final few questions what is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit I think it's sleep I try to get uh, enough rest as possible. And usually what uh, what I do, if I know the time I'm going to wake up, I like calculate 
the hours I will need for sleep. So I make sure that if I'm to wake up at a specific time, then I have to sleep at that at a specific time so that I can have those hours. How many hours are you calculating? Um, I love eight hours. Yeah, I mean, I'm a nine girl. Sleep is free. I can do nine as well. Uh, is there anything you have read or watched recently that you would like to recommend to listeners? No, I haven't done much reading or watched recently. Too busy saving the planet. It's fine. You're excused. <laughs> Thank you. And finally, what is one thing that you hope your future self will have achieved? I really hope that my future self would have achieved some of the things that I am advocating for and possibly would see uh, a number of schools in my country have solar energy through the Vash Grid Schools project. Amazing. Vanessa, I am so, so happy to have spent this time with you. It's been wonderful meeting you and I'm so grateful that you have come on this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. It was great speaking with you. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation and please do feel free to share it with a friend directly or on social media tagging me at Venetia Lamana and tagging the show at ATST podcast. If you'd like to share your thoughts with me or make a suggestion, please do message directly at ATST podcast on Instagram. I always love hearing from you and hearing what you thought of specific episodes. And if you're new here, please do make sure you're subscribed. I'd love to have you back each and every week. As always, please do check out the episode notes for links to my guests and their work. And I'll see you back here next week for a brand new episode. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.